0: Tango with the Titan, coming up on Love Thy Neighbor.
1: You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Wilkney. Hey
0: everybody, welcome to Another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast in the world that's crazy enough and daring enough to exclusively dedicate itself to the one, the only, your boy, right with Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined as always by co host Zach Narison and Aaron Duncan. That's right, Aaron Duncan is back in the house, and we'll tell you why here in a second. But before we bring in our very special and distinguished guest for today, I just want to take a second to tell you all about what we have coming up. We will have a couple people revisiting, just to get an update on their latest research and works. Dr. Josephine Grafe and Dr. Joshua Malden. We're also going to have a good friend of ours, Jen Treller, on, get this, on Valentine's Day, to talk about those spicy letters exchanged between Reinhold and Ursula. You can't see it, but I'm blushing right now. And then we have some more killer interviews on the way, uh, and we'll announce them as they get firmed up. Also just make sure you, uh, think if you think about it, drop us a couple bucks on our tip jar on Twitter. Uh, just go to our profile and click on the icon in the upper right hand corner. It will send you right to our Venmo. Uh, we're just looking to break even on you know our streaming subscription folks, so help us out. Uh, anyway, without further ado, I now bring to you today, the main event. M- Maximum Our guest today is Professor John Milbank, he is a world-renowned theologian uh, who I would say is one of, if not the uh, most influential uh, theologians alive today, certainly on the other side of the pond. He's Professor Emeritus at the University of Nottingham, he's known as the father of radical orthodoxy, and he's written uh, way too many books and articles to name. John, what an, what an honor to have you, welcome. Well, it's an honor to be on your program. Oh, thank you. For our audience, the three of us have read John's essay found in his collection of essays, The Word Made Strange. The essay we'll be focusing on, uh, surprise, surprise, is called The Poverty of Niebuhrianism. And uh, we're all, I'm, me and Zach are really into Niebuhr, so I got to be honest, you know, I was a little triggered, you know, a couple, a few months ago when I first read it. uh, But thankfully, enough time has passed for me to find the serenity to accept the essay, I cannot (laughs) (laughs) It's grace. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we've all read it and prepared questions for Professor Moe Banks. Zach will start and then I'll go, then Aaron and around will go for an hour and then we'll wrap up. By the way, I I think um, this should be mentioned to our audience. We originally scheduled this for way back in October but had to reschedule twice uh, for varying reasons. Um, so we want to thank John for having Grace with us. Um, and we're obviously thankful for his, uh, his patience. But we originally surprised Aaron with this interview with Professor Milbank, because uh, he might be too shy to say to you, John, but uh, you know, you're probably his most uh, favorite living theologians. So yeah, this was his birthday present. I offered him the first question, but I think he's too starstruck to go first. He's, he's, <laughs> he's uh, yeah, sure. He's blushing right now for our audience. Okay, so Zach, uh, first question, you got it. Take it away.
1: Yeah, um, even before just diving into the article, I always ask the question. I would always ask is normally we're interviewing, uh, you know, somebody who's like uh, an expert in Niebuhr or writes a lot about Niebuhr, uh, but it's a little different for you. Um, so I gonna normally the question I would ask is why Niebuhr? But for you, I'm going to ask uh, the opposite question or a kind of a collection of questions. Um, When did you first encounter Niebuhr's work and when did you come to believe he was off base? So, in other words, why not Niebuhr?
2: Well, this goes a long way back um, and I'm not sure that I can entirely reconstruct it. You know, it's like... uh, when you have a cold case reopened and people are asked <laughs> to, you know, remember stuff about a murder decades ago and what they were doing on such and such a day, and I never know how they managed to do that. So, um, what what I do remember is that uh, that that essay, which I think was published, oh, kind of in the early nineties, in the version you've got already had a very long genesis. Um, and in fact, it uh, it tracks back um, to maybe the late 70s or the early 80s. And I originally wrote it as a pamphlet, I suspect for the Christian Socialist Jubilee group. Um, and it was kind of uh, a, a pro CND sort of unilateralist kind of pamphlets. Um, in which i was um arguing against the views of richard harris who's now he's a very distinguished man he's a good thinker um and he's developed over the years actually he's now lord harris and um you know he 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 were he's been a bishop and a significant figure within uh, you know anglicanism over the years who you know com- demands, more of my respect than I probably gave him when I was a young man, but you know <laughs> we all grow up, I hope. <laughs> um but i I he was very much sort of defending the morality of owning and uh, sort of intending to use um nuclear bombs. And Harris was a newberian. uh he Richard. Nibia, sorry, not Richard Nibia. <laughs> Reinhold <laughs> Nibia come quite get the right brother here, you know? Um yeah. Reinhold Nubia was definitely his hero. So I came to read Nibia um to see what influence he had on Richard Harris. Hmm. and so i came to Nubia assuming Nubia would be rock actually <laughs> <laughs> that's the honest truth and uh, the more i read him the more i felt uh confirmed in my view that he was probably rock um just you know despite some points of sympathy uh, another interesting detail is that when i wrote it i think i was still in my late 20s initially and it was very badly written, and it was to some degree rewritten by Rome Williams, mm-hmm. um, who who sort of improved the the prose and 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 so on. So uh, there's a bit of Rome Williams actually in, in in this essay. Um, but you know that yeah. that's the way you know historical documents go, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I kind of rewrote it a lot later to go in the book collection, The Word Made Strange. And uh, maybe um, another interesting and important detail was that I was already aware, I was influenced by Donald McKinnon, who's a famous British theologian and philosopher, the the teacher of Iris Murdoch, um, Philippa Foote, um other very distinguished female ethicists um now mckinnon was in his own way a um a kind of realist as regards international relations and um he he was involved in many things but in one dimension he was also the teacher of rome williams but in one dimension, he was part of the so-called English school in international relations, which I wasn't very aware of at the time, more aware of since that involved people like Martin White and um Hedley, Hedley Bull. And already in this article, I allude a little bit to a difference between American realism in international relations and British mode of realism in international relations and uh more recently in the book i co-wrote um you know more mixture of authors going on here uh the book i co-wrote with adrian paps the politics of virtue um we talk quite a little bit more about the british school or the english school version of um realism in international relations. Mm. Um, and again contrasting it um with the Niburian version. And uh maybe during the course of this uh we need to touch on this a bit more because I think it's significant, especially because in many ways the debate about realism in IR is now back in focus mm-hmm. um because a great disillusionment has set in with um, sort of neoliberal or neocon um, idealism, you know, which uh-huh. led to the forever wars and so on. Mm-hmm. So an awful lot of people are saying, we got to revert to realism in, uh-huh. in international relations, which I guess could be one reason why we might reopen Nibia. <laughs> and <laughs> especially, you know, if we're, if we're theologians but the i think the issue does arise kind of what kind of realism so the, the the original essay was was very much sort of focused on the debate about the nuclear bomb and then when i revised it that element got sort of somewhat more reduced um if you like to 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 a subplot, so so kind of that's the background of how this essay comes to exist. And of course, for me, it, it's it's quite a long time ago now, and, and I certainly have looked back at Niebuhr's texts since then. You know, so
0: now you make that distinction between British and American realism. Is there something particularly American about Niebuhr? Where had he perhaps grown up in Britain? Um, I'm just trying to imagine him coming from a more uh, British background, where perhaps the divide between church and state isn't so ambiguous as it is here or uh, or separated. Uh, would he have would his writing have been a bit more palatable? Of course, this is an impossible question to answer, but
2: no, uh, but I think it's 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 a good question. And possibly the sort of the American church state divide. Could be conjugated as um a divide between the ethical and the ideal mm. and the more
0: kind of brutally pragmatic mm-hmm. it, it, if you like, so you think kind of you bring up in here the the Kant pragmatic swing no. in in Niebuhr. Do you think that that's a particularly American expression well not necessarily because (laughs) you could find examples of that easily
2: I think amongst um, English thinkers but I suppose you might argue there's that sort of legacy of transcendentalism in America and also a legacy of pragmatism and sometimes those can coincide in a very subtle way as Mm -hmm. maybe with with Peirce and um, William James and Josiah Royce. Um, but but maybe it's also possible to imagine a sort of cruder kind of pragmatism that's a little bit consequentialist and a cruder kind of transcendentalism that's um, um, simply too sort of elevated from reality that is, is sort of a matter of Kantian, absolute imperatives and it does seem to me that that's kind of the risk in in nubia and um, that it sort of some somewhat calls to mind the sort of stoic duality of having you know very private ethic on the one hand and then a sort of ethic a sort of resigned ethic of public duties on on the other hand so that Part of what I was saying was that I didn't think that Niebuhr thought in a particularly Platonic or Aristotelian way. Mm. So that kind of Alistair McIntyre hovers in the background of of, of that essay. Um, And I'm worried about having a kind of dualism of the ideal and the practical, Mm. which somehow fails to realise that ethics is inherently practical. And that if you have an ideal that, that is, can only be realized to a degree or that reality is sort of fighting the ideal, mm-hmm. maybe that's a very false conception of what an ideal is. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Do you, do you, get, you, you get what I'm saying? That yeah. it, it needs to be realistic to be a genuine human incarnate right. ideal.
0: That That's and- what I'm saying. And a big part of your thesis uh, just in your career is how Christianity in particular is just better at negotiating these things that we try to distinguish and pull apart here. Um, And when we dissolve the state into, you know, the secular and the sacred or something like that, we are making the problems much more difficult uh, to solve through that distinction
2: yes, i i I think so. I think we're we're assuming that we've got a natural realistic framework um but actually it's not that mm. um, that in in concrete reality, there's a great fluidity between you know the private and the public, um the ethical and the and the political. Um, and your sort of everyday concerns and your more ultimate concerns about what's the whole meaning of life and 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 so on yeah um such that you know for a state to have a kind of ultimate religious orientation, the sort of checkpoint um that you know that, that as represented by having an established church in in some sense. Okay. It is a kind of natural recognition that there is something that you're answerable to, that you're answerable to something ultimate. Mm. And if you don't have that in mind, that present hovering, I think something else will, will replace it. You know, that kind of um, money becomes ultimate or nationalism mm. becomes ultimate or taking control um becomes ultimate and instead of a focus on the person but you know how do we get a focus on persons and community if we don't have something like the idea that we're in the image of god and that loving relationship is the ultimate thing that we hmm. we should be pursuing um <laughs> and uh, you know if you're asking about why would british international realism be different i think the difference is that all the people i'm talking about always had this kind of very birkin sense um that culture is is fundamental so that if culture is fundamental um, there is no reality that doesn't have some kind of ideal element, mm-hmm. even if it is a sort of very rooted ideal element. Mm-hmm. So if if you say that kind of normally international re- relations, um, it's it's a sort of competition between brutal realism that you're trying to have a, a balance of power between different states, right. and, and then this sort of utopian internationalism round rights and something abstract. Mm-hmm. I think the interesting thing about the English school is that they say, no, what is fundamental is neither of those things, but but culture, which crosses boundaries. Thus, you know, for example, in Europe, you've got different nations, but there is a common shared culture. You know, so their relationship, their relations are never simply brutal power relations or completely abstract utopian aspiration, you know, although some people would argue the EU is too much like that. Mm-hmm. But even, say, transatlantic relations, there's this huge historical shared, you know, cultural, cultural backgrounds. And... Uh, if we want to extend that even more widely, you know, I mean, there's a long history that we're only really just exploring of communication between Greece and India, for example. There's, the, there's a sort of post so-called axial age shared hmm. sensibility, even if it's, um, you know, obscure along the Silk Road or or something like that, so that we're never really confronting each other in a naked way. And so I think it's this interest in the in the cultural dimension and uh, a sense that you can't make very neat distinctions between the real and the ideal that, you know, even if one country is fighting another, a country has some kind of idea of itself of what, what it's about, you know. The, so um, I mean, even if this becomes very fictional, like when England and Germany were fighting each other in the First World War, they thought it was a kind of fight between German cultural building mm. and Anglo-Saxon notions of civilization. And These are part of the reality. You could say, "Well, that's just sort of ideological overlay," but I, I think, I think that's not quite right. I think that these, the struggle over different ideals, is still a part of what. And and so, just as today, I don't think it's completely true to say that we, we're reverting to some sort of multipolar um conflict between powers mm-hmm. because there are still clearly ideological fractures involved, whether we think of Russia, or we think of China, or we think of, of um politicized Islam, mm-hmm. you know, and even if we want to say, well, the West is very decadent, and maybe these other civilizations are very decadent, there there is still kind of some ideal involved Mm -hmm. and if if there wasn't you know if we ever get to the point where it's just the white man versus the non-white man then that kind of pure realism is a nightmare of sort of global race struggle if if you like right that maybe that specter does hover over us but i think you know that would be complete barbarism uh, well, uh, that's uh, what I was
0: thinking. Like the the it gets difficult, it gets tricky when you start looking at things as culture versus culture because you're necessarily going to uh, be biased toward one culture and think that your culture is it. it, it, yeah. it, it goes into something that smells kind of fascism-y. But, it, but it, <laughs> the point is rather that, and this is very much in Burke
2: that culture also mediates. You know that that. It, it, that politics isn't necessarily the most fundamental thing. That So that it, Burke says, you know, even though you've got different European nations, in fact, there's a common culture. And um, it, even their laws reflect, the, the different European laws reflect, you know, a shared legal background. And that's part of how they're able to to talk to each other. In, in your essay,
3: you mentioned that uh, politics is just like technology, it's just, and technology is a part of language and the language that we have is like in terms of efficiency, optimization, control. And I think it's really easy to see how you link that to the sort of liberal project um, because it isn't really direct to any uh, higher end other than itself, just kind of building itself up. So I was wondering if there's, um, a way to sanctify te- technology for uh, an end. Again, the, in the essay, you, you mentioned that we need to go back to the Augustinian Thomist version of realizing acts, actions and uh, consequences to a final, fo- final end.
2: Yes. I, I mean, if I talk about politics as being technocracy, I'm very much thinking about modern liberal politics where i think um on the one hand you're you're talking about politics as being formal systems for preserving individual freedom and 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 freedom of choice and then if there's anything in common beyond that it tends to be something very pragmatic like um a shared pursuit of um domination of reality and particularly domination of nature and this is probably why um the the liberal outcome can so readily be married to uh, a domineering attitude um over nature you know because assuming that um you know the question what is liberty for tends to be oh liberty is about dominating you know um um, dominating the non-free, so we have this sort of very questionable idea, perhaps, that nature um, is is this completely inert thing mm-hmm. that we can spread our um, control over. And of course, there's no easy dividing line between controlling nature and controlling other people. Oh, mm-hmm. You know, so then you get the sort of tension between. The technocratic goal um, and this supposed idea that liberty is is, is fundamental. And uh, the more you release liberty, um, the more then the powerful tend to assume control over, over, over the less powerful. And this can apparently be free and consensual in terms of the market but you know we don't need to read marx to realize that there there is hidden coercion um
0: involved here i mean we could read heidegger right um the I, yeah. the idea that we're just standing reserve and even yeah. in the in the language yeah. of capital of we're called human resources yeah. we are yes. called um yes. exactly. laborers and consumers and we're all fitting in somehow yeah it's it's yeah. really uh, dystopian sounding it is. So, so I think the only way
2: to get, overcome that technocratic idea of politics is if we have some kind of shared sense of what we should be achieving mm-hmm. as human beings and are therefore going to help each other to achieve and systematically help each other to achieve. Because if you say, well, you know, you can just do what you like with a few people agree with you you know you're probably not going to have the resources to really uh achieve those goals and you're going to be readily outcompeted competed by people who are just pursuing um more brutal things like more 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 money or uh, more sort of bureaucratic control there and the more we have you know an expansion of automatic technocratic procedures that the more that becomes easy to do and and the more sort of face-to-face cooperation becomes very limited but I think the only way to have a more human politics is if we do have a public debate about what sort of things we want to prioritize uh, what sort of things we think are, Genuinely fulfilling for human beings, and uh, the usual objection, if you say is, uh, if you say that, is uh, people will say, "Well, you disagree, or you want to impose something on something else, somebody else." And I, I think there are two responses to that. I think the first is that um, it isn't fully clear what we should be achieving as human beings. It's an ongoing debates and you, you can see that debate if you look at Plato's dialogues for for example but unless the question of sort of what is fulfilling is answer is being pursued then it would seem as if there's something very lacking in in uh, in our human existence and I I think the second response is that you can really exaggerate um the degree to which people do disagree you know um and that actually if you say to people well um the 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 aims of life um are to achieve some kind of contemplation of reality that some kind of harmony with reality uh to pursue um creativity and the expression of beauty um and to pursue social participation and a kind of extension of, of um of friendship in, in in public life so that we're political animals we're artistic animals we're religious animals
0: mm-hmm.
2: i think that most of the major civilizations do recognize that mm-hmm. in in some way and the the sense that western modernity has subordinated all that um Mm. because perhaps initially of religious conflict Mm. so it's sort of invented this with people like hobbes and so on it's invented this remarkable substitute for that kind of civilizational consensus and in, in world terms perhaps that remains very eccentric except that we have exported this this liberalism and and this technocracy. But as I think people like John Gray, the British political philosopher, are now saying, it's just not so clear that this sort of Hobbesian realism is, unrealistic, is realistic, right. uh, at least in the very long term. You know, this idea that people will um yeah. sort of suppress their original nastiness for mm. pragmatic reasons they they'll uh, they'll stop killing each other um because they might be killed Only I mean, if it, it's sort of northern mexico that doesn't look to be true you know it it looks as if the bad guys are in charge and and increasingly the line between sort of honest politics and corrupt politics or between honest business and corrupt business seems to be nowadays very blurred and I think it's one reason why nothing seems to work any longer whether mm. it's the same in the UK as in the US you know people feel that everything is broken but nothing really properly works and uh and, and I think this is part of the reason that maybe up till now we've had a very kind of embedded kind of liberalism you know okay we we do believe in freedom we do believe in democratic consensus but that's only be possible because actually the amounts of disagreement are not that big um and and there are you know we belong we belong to sort of churches and thick communities and all the rest of it you know it's not an accident that liberal democracy democracies work best in scandinavia where where they all pretty much agree about everything you know yeah, um, so, yeah. Uh, and and so i think liberalism is much more embedded than we think that it, it relies on a kind of corporatist collaboration between different groups rather than this idea of fictional individuals coming together in some kind of contract and the the nearer you artificially produce that situation Mm -hmm. the more in fact liberalism seems to be just collapsing
0: well i I was going to ask um i'm sorry i'm talking so much guys i'm just i'm really, I'm really fascinated by this but i think um this is where i think And this is where I was a little disappointed to read your article because I think you and Niebuhr have so much in common and what you are trying to to go against. You know, it could be I need to reread Niebuhr. Yes. (laughs) It's a long time. So
2: I'm not sort of going to the stake on that one. But, uh, you know, I think the early Niebuhr was more kind Mm of Marxist. uh, Absolutely. And and, and so on. It's just that I worry about this element of... um, duality in his thinking so that this idea that there are sort of limits to the degree to which you can do good um and e- even though this can lead to us paradoxically to to a sort of kind of false optimism that you you think well we can we can make progress to some degree where whereas you don't realize that actually Corruption can can set in in a really radical way, and, and at any point, it's not that there are just mm-hmm. sort of limits. It, it's that there is radical perversity at the core of <laughs> human beings. You know, this this is what original sin means. It doesn't mean yeah. immaturity or or, or things that are a little bit imperfect. No, it means imperfection can break out and corrode. Um you know, the, the very best stuff. Um, and, and it's that that so it's in part this more sort of tragic perspective that you also get in Donald McKinnon and in, in the British Outlook. Um, and certainly McKinnon himself thought that was kind of lacking in 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 Nibia. So, in a really bizarre way, I suppose I'm saying that I once at once think that he's not
0: optimistic enough and that he's too optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because I think that you're, um, what, do- what he tries to do with nature and destiny is so similar to your project because I think you're both kind of a response to Nietzsche's proclamation of God is dead. And that just the way you were just talking just now reminded me of this, of how we're starting to see the collapse now. You know, in culture, in the humanities, uh, in politics, where these things we used to rely upon, these institutions even we used to rely upon, they that were held up by kind of a latent Christianity is now kind of dissolving. Um, Mm -hmm. He tried to recapture it. He tried to recapture it in Nature and Destiny by recapturing the Christian understanding of humanity, of the human being. Uh, human nature, the Imago Dei, and, you know, uh, elevating the self, but also elevating the self by his conception of sin, which was that we are free and, you know, all these things. And you, you have a, a very similar, I th- I would say that maybe where he goes to just these principles of Imago Dei and original sin, you want to use the kind of Mac- MacIntyre virtue, uh narrative these types of things is that fair and what would be the distinction between what niebuhr tries to do in nature and destiny i guess what you're trying to do
2: well I, i i suppose i've tried to indicate um a little bit of that already that that if you if you're adopting a virtue approach um you're less thinking in terms of sort of um Absolute principles as of mm. rather more obscure goals that can only be understood in, in in very um yeah in 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 very concrete terms. Um mm. but but you're 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 not supposing that somehow reality is inherently inhospitable to the realization of ethical goals. So that it, it it's, it's very important here. I think that you do have the idea that everything is naturally created good, but but it, it, there's a there's a sort of obscure line of corruption that is running through everything. But Christianity does propose the kind of remedy. It, it suggests that if we suffer. Those kind of fractures, and and we don't sort of adopt an attitude of vengefulness or or of resentment in in Nietzschean terms. But if instead we endure and um, try to um, to work through all that, mm-hmm. and if we adopt a, a an entirely forgiving attitude towards other people. And and we 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 accept that what is past is past, um, but try to focus on the positive outcomes that are nonetheless always that to some mm-hmm. to some degree, and we that we try to. We have a permanent attitude of trying to heal reality, mm-hmm. if if you like. I, there is no in, if you know, like what would happen in in um within a monastic order, um, that there is is no inherent limit to the possibility of that practice, nor is there um, a realm of the political um, that is necessarily inhospitable to that. So perhaps there's a natural tendency with most Christians, including Libya, to think of ethics as first of all sort of private um and then you know we can be ethical within the family and our local communities but that becomes Mm. more difficult in the political sphere Mm. whereas my attitude would be more like plato and aristotle and i would argue the bible and Augustine and aquinas that actually ethics is only ethics is subordinate to politics it's politics that's Mm. first that, that well, it, you know, if you read Aristotle's politics, it's cl- ethics, it's clear it's only a part of his politics. In other words, that ethics is about um, the human community and it's about roles within that community. So even if you understand that ethics is now about a religious community and you call it the church or the sangha or whatever, it's still in a certain sense political so so that um on this view you could only have the ethical um where you have some kind of social organization if there was no social organization i would be murdering people actually that's that's my <laughs> um everybody so so that you know it's only possible to be ethical within certain circumstances of shall we say, relatively um guaranteed peace. And uh, you know, were it not the case that we that politics can be ethical, there's a sense in which, and um, you know, Beson who is rel- relevant to this is two sources of morality and religion. There would be a certain sense is of my normal ethical behavior is really just military discipline. In other words, um, my normal ethical behavior is just part of British military security in the last analysis um wh- whereas you know uh, the ethical is 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 supposed to be instead something Universal so if if an entity like Britain or the United States is a completely amoral entity if it if it's only about power, then my argument would be um, this is a different new argument that that would expose all our morality as illusion. You know, we would we would just be treating fellow Americans well for the sake of American solidarity, if if you like to put it that way. So that in this sense, I think the Stoics are right that you have to have a cosmopolitan ethics. It, you, the, Universal ethics has to be part of a cosmopolis, but it's it's only kind of Christianity that was able to put that in practice in terms of a church. Now, this this doesn't mean that I'm supporting a kind of vague liberal Bill Gates type internationalism, because I think, you know, Augustine was completely right to talk about the Ordo and Morris. In other words, we only learn to be ethical by loving our family and our neighbor. And it's sort of a series, if you like, of expanding circles. Mm-hmm. But I think if there's no sort of onlook towards an ultimate um, circle, you know, the, the kingdom of God, um, it, you know, there's always the worry then that my love for my mother um, is, is really a mode of hatred for the mothers of other people. and. And somehow, you know, that can't be right, or Mm -hmm. a lack of respect of your love for your mother. Um, That can't possibly be right. So in that sense, it does seem to be this ultimate political integration. And, you know, I can't love everybody equally, but I can be part of a community like the church. That where I know that other people are trying to love people next to them and it's all somehow joined up. And I think so that I, this connects but... with the fact that, you know, very primitive people do have a law of hospitality. You know, that this is characteristic of all primitive people. They don't just love their own tribe. They also have a sense that if a stranger arrives, he's kind of like a god. He's like an angel. Um, and you know, you may be entertaining an angel unawares, as he says. And so there isn't this kind of strong line between the very local and the very international. A lot of our battles today are about between sort of liberals who are, as a uh, British theorist has put it, you know, citizens of nowhere and then kind of somewhere people. And we, we need probably as Christians or religious people to sort of bridge that divide, um, and and think in a more you know consistently wow. relational way. But I do think that if you think in a more Aristotelian way that you can't really separate ethics from politics, then you don't enter into this anything like this sort of somewhat Machiavellian. Real so-called realism um, about 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 politics. You 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 certainly have the sense that it's it's tougher to reach peace uh, at the international level. But if if you really can't do it at all, somehow even our private morality is compromised. And I think you see a huge illustration of the truth of what I'm saying in the the recent Gaza war which immediately led to, even within families, people violently disagreeing with each other. In other words, if there is no peace between Israel and Palestine, in an age of mass media, this kind of tears the whole world apart, you know, that you've got people sort of disgracefully pitting the sufferings of some children against the sufferings of other children.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: Let's yeah. yeah. So I, I have a question that kind of, I think builds on this a little bit in the section in the, art, in the article, you've know, you read about the, the limits to ethical possibilities, you talk about Niebuhr's, how he constrains potential for ethical decision making. Um, and one of the things you say in there that we're, we're seem to be saying, and I, from a pastoral perspective, and from even a personal perspective, as I read Niebuhr, I find him to be very transformative to my Christian ethics. Um, But it seems like you believe Niebuhr misses out on the transformative potential of Christian ethics. Could you explain how this might show up in like a local parish or like in the everyday lives of Christians? I think you've kind of elaborated a little bit of that, but could you expand on that a little bit?
2: Yes, that's an interesting, if perhaps rather difficult um, sort of question. I mean, I think Niebuhr tends to say well, there are, there are limits to your realization of your ethical ideal because there are things like limits to um, human imagination. Whereas I would tend to say that a, 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 a sort of ethical aspiration and imagination coincide, inside, um, just as... Um, all our deeds are in language and it's, you can't separate what's ethically possible from the the range of our linguistic expression and the possibility of sympathy um, that occurs through language and ethical nuances of response are, are linked also to our use of language and our imaginative empathy. Uh-huh. if you like so I, even even if one's saying um that there are limits to our imagination i think that would also be a limit to our ethics it's not that we have a sort of absolute ethics again i think there's too much deontology uh, and thinking in terms of laws probably and principles in in eth- in, in Nibia. um whereas i would want to say yeah if if we have a very restricted range of imagination and linguistic use and community that that's also limiting our ethics it it, it, it the, the ethics is 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 real but it, it's not that the ethics is being limited by something extrinsic to to ethics it it's a limitation of of our cultural range as such you know, which we've got to always keep expanding, but I don't I don't think there are any inherent limits
0: um to isn't, our ability to do that. As a Wittgensteinian, could we say that language is a limit? Yeah, well, I mean that's
2: a really interesting question because I think that sort of Wittgenstein and Wittgensteinian thoughts were also hovering in the background of that essay. Probably more for me than Um, than they really would now and you've probably put your finger on it because I think I was very much using Wittgenstein to say to sort of undermine any idea that there are um, you know very 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 fixed kind of a priori norms that because um, culture is, is inside language. It, it's therefore very fluid. But but the question of whether actually Wittgenstein tends, in the end, even though he has this idea of language games and so on, tends to see language as a kind of transcendental boundary that is, in some obscure way, given. Thus, it, it, it sort of um, it, it means that. The boundaries of operation are, as it were, grammatical rather than metaphysical, any kind of metaphysical speculation. And that metaphysical speculation is for him in the end because you're you're not clearly seeing, you're sort of misusing language. Um, whereas my argument would be, on the contrary, that language is inherently speculative. Huh. So, um, so I would argue that a more radical linguistic turn um is is to see that yeah that language has to speculate it's not a kind of it's not it's not it's in no sort of given transcendental bound um what what whatsoever so so for me Wittgenstein if you take a more radical linguistic turn like something like Vico or Haman or and hmm. so on then, then you open the way back into metaphysics, and so so that h- human language, which, which sort of sort of and human symbolism in general, um is from the very outset a kind of shared metaphysics. This is why myth is so important that it's it's a reading of of reality mm. and all our moves within language, are um, in sort of interpretations of our shared construal of language uh, and, and and so forth. So, I think that view is already sort of hovering in the background there, but it would be sort of both with and ultimately against Wittgenstein, okay. if, yeah. I, if I, I could put it that way. It's So it's more that I want to kind of build kind of constructivism into the context of very traditional metaphysics, sort of met- metaphysics as an account of our p- participation in absolute reality. But it's, it's a dynamic participation that that both nature and human culture is sort of self creating, participating in a creator God, and in a relational sort of self-causing Trinitarian God, if, mm-hmm. if, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that this means that where we operate within sort of cultures that are, that are religions and the, that are like sort of speculations or reality, but all our moves, all our actions within that are kind of reinterpretations if if you like so that we're not operating within um within a closed system yeah. we've got rather a long way from here, but <laughs> go ahead Aaron.
3: sorry actually i want to kind of jump off that so we're not like in a Lockean uh, blank slate stuff there's something underlying the human experience some intuition that we have yes. all common um, shared values maybe like an augustinian sort of intuition of the restlessness of trying yes. to find
2: home Yes uh, and and you know, I mean we, we've already always already begun to use language um and and we've we've always already interpreted in, empirical reality and we um, we only understand empirical reality because in some way our imagination and our reason, resonate with that 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 reality so it's as if we can recreate what we see all the time and and that's why I think Locke is wrong and why there is a kind of idealist dimension although I would want to overcome the difference between between idealism and realism but you know we're not able to perceive or touch anything except to the degree that we can Construe it mm-hmm. uh, in a way we're elaborating, we're positing it as fixed or putting it out of, out of ourselves. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're not really in, in encountering something, um, or that you know we could do that if we weren't embodied and we weren't in in the material world. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's that that sort of triggers this. Uh, I I think. But there is somehow an an affinity uh, between mind and and the natural world, you know, because we can assume that there are sort of somehow something parallel to our mind going on within the natural world. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that the, the Romantics said. And it seems to me now that philosophers are much more prepared to reconsider you know even analytic philosophy is becoming more prepared to take seriously that kind of way of looking at things because really dualism doesn't make sense the The idea that we're just sort of spectators of, of a of a mindless world mm-hmm. is not very believable but i
3: think it explains your turn to spinoza quite quite well yeah
2: said. there's sort of some interest in spinoza Um, all the way along, uh, 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 as there was kind of with the with the Romantics, while um, feeling, um, you know, like somebody like Schelling, that there's there's not enough allowance to liberty being made here, and it's too it's too sort of rationalist and deterministic. Well, I would just say I think you know one of the the last things I'll say is if if,
3: you know if we kind of get rid of the Lockean notion of blank slate. I think you know if you have that kind of ideal you can elaborate and construct out of that that you know there are things beyond an individual and in a community like some idea of liberty fraternity equality that we have to have to impose on like the sense sense data we're all receiving at, at any point to help us yeah. bind together but if there is that sort of shared intuition of something mm-hmm. um, either being in god Um, you know, uh, charity, grace, love, there is that sort of already innate, inbuilt sort of tendency to bind together, uh, you know, uh, what's been um, disassembled through sin uh, of some sort?
2: No, uh, definitely. Um, And uh, therefore, this binding together can include our relationship to nature as as, as well as to other people, because the, there's some kind of um, natural resonance going on. Um, and, and I, I do think that we, we need to restore our um, belonging to the cosmos. And it, it, it's, it's a question of how you do that with, without sort of losing the sense of personal liberty but perhaps we do that by by realizing there's a kind of continuum that that um there are spontaneities out there in nature and that uh there's a beginning of individuality and self expression um at every level of le- of nature sort of rising t- to the animal and um and then and, and then to the human so that You much more have the sense that the human beings are consummating something that's already there in nature and that they're kind of bearing responsibility for that and for bringing it to fulfilment and 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 helping everything to bring itself to fulfilment and and, you know and, and we're starting to to see that you know when Saint Paul talks about Christ being all in all, that he is concerned um, with the, with this with this cosmic dimension, uh, I think. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, okay, we had the sort of religious axial age where we're concerned with the individual and and salvation and the sense, if you like, from escaping from um, something unsatisfactory. And, and yet, you know, the cosmic was never altogether left behind and it's not left behind in with Jesus, who, who's talking about his relationship to the, the rural countryside the whole time with St. Paul. He talks about the cosmos with with the book of Revelation that seems to return to a concern with the stars and all these cosmic symbols uh, and. The sense that even Apocalypse is about the renewal of the cosmos, ultimately. You know, it's it's it's
0: transformation, something I worry um, about, John, is yeah. something I worry about when I when I'm reading you is and you say, like, it's it, it, we can't lose the self, though, or we can't lose the individual. Um, I'm worried in your epistemology about complete modal collapse of everything meaning the same thing. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, I get the same kind of impression with Spinoza of, yeah, we come up with distinctions here, but you're quick to even point out that, you know, from a God perspective, these distinctions aren't really distinctions, and they're just language we use to understand. But I, like Niebuhr will use dialectics of, you know, extremes we can't go to, and then try to, you know, pave a way in between the extremes, and I don't see that kind of same d- dialectic in you. I see something that you're afraid of doing, and that's the dualism part. Um, but what is keeping your thought from becoming the complete absorption of nature, uh, of humanity and nature, and all that?
2: Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's a really good question. Um and it, it, in a way it, it invites the question of what is really the relationship of monotheism to monism um yeah you know if there's a one and simple god to to what extent that does he allow individual reality um but it 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 seems to me that if that created reality has to mean that there is some kind of value in the finite and the different in itself and even in its, if you like, its its scarcity. It's almost as if um, if you have a sort of total infinite plenitude, it lacks limitations. So that somehow that has to be brought about because it has a value in itself. And and our, our idea of God in some fashion has to accommodate the idea that He's not only one but also all. And, and you know therefore our idea of the unity of God is beyond the mere contrast of the one with the many. So if you're saying that I sound to be valuing unity too much, well though that would be a fault if i did that i mean what i, I don't really... think
0: you i don't think that you do i i just you worry know. about people in your um i mean you're you have a huge influence and i and i'm just wondering about people who come yeah. into your steps and try to further your
2: yeah it's 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 a really really valid concern i mean it was i would say what i'm more trying to value is the middle or the metaxu. And like William Desmond or like Plato or Simon Vai, mm. it, it's the relational middle that I'm mm. more trying to, to value.
0: That's helpful. Um, um,
2: so it's that sense of mediation and that it, it, with the idea of the Trinity, somehow mediation is ultimate even in God, mediation and encounter. So so it's the idea of peace, which seems to be one of the things at the core of my thoughts, sort of peace and harmony, uh, that being is that peace and harmony. So it's not a monolithic um, in, imposed unity, whether of being or of a kind of totally transparent, logical Thought, mm-hmm. it, it's much more a perfect harmony mm-hmm. of encounter and creative, poetic mm-hmm. expression. Even even with God, if, if if you if you like to put it that way. So this is what, in some impossible to understand mm-hmm. sense, there is this sort of transformative encountering life even in God, you know, and that ideas about it's finished, it's fixed, it's perfect, mm-hmm. are also just finite ideas. You know, it's like we need to sort of overcome even the contrast between rest and motion if we're able to, to think um, the absolute. And yeah. so that e- even if we're saying, look, God is complete, without us nonetheless it, this has to be something that totally validates um his his act in in creating so that um and i think that, again this is part of what the trinity is about that sort of the outside god is also somehow inside god and um um and 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 also i think the incarnation that that this isn't just a sort of event that happens to save us between god and us it can that can't be true it it must if god became incarnate that is eternally true of god and it must eternally transfigure um the creation and again i think this is very clearly um, st paul's perspective you know so i think neither the trinity nor christology would allow us to think in only monistic terms,
1: you know, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Um, Yeah, um, I should have, this is my final question for you, but it comes from a a post you made, uh, it it ties in connects to what we're talking about with this uh, essay you wrote, but it comes from a a thread you did in uh, 2022. And I'm just gonna read it really quick just to kind of give context. Uh, You said the idea of a third way liberal international order is a fantasy. The truth is that the US is a dishonest dominant imperial power. It does not keep global order through consent, but by imposition of capitalism and where this is refused by armed force. By comparison, the the older, more honest European empires for all their terrible faults and oppressions tried to offer positive political and cultural benefits and truly to interact with other countries and civilizations. American power is more naked, although it is more disguised. What does a more honest empire look like? How does a nation achieve a more honest empire?
2: Well, I'm not recommending we repeat that now. I'm just suggesting that um, when you had sort of more political empire, um, although in many ways it, it, it was very evil. Um, it, it wasn't without benefit in the sense that it did involve an actual face-to-face um, and you weren't simply trying, e- even if there was there's an element of economic exploitation involved, inevitably, if you think of this other country as somehow part of you now, you're also trying to positively benefit it and there is a sort of real cultural exchange uh going on so what what worries me i think about the sort of the the post-colonial um situation is that we've got more disguised but more brutal forms of corruption that you're you're simply trying seeing 70 southern countries as the sources of economic resources and quite often we're very happy to keep sort of rather corrupt local leaders in in power because they're receiving lots of benefits from us um and so they're you know they're happy about that um and and therefore um you know when when you go to these countries they they will often not say what kind of liberal leftists say in universities. They'll, of, they'll often say things like, actually, we kind of rather regret the times when the British and the French were here because they weren't as corrupt as our local re- leaders. Uh, and we've got one tribe dominating the other tribe uh, uh, and, and, and so on. This is particularly true, I think, of, of, of Africans, but this isn't reported somehow in the British press. I'm going on my direct experience and direct experience of other people who get, who go to these countries. And I, I do think that it, it it's sort of difficult in a way for America to operate an empire because you're founded by rebelling against an empire, <laughs> yeah. but being, yeah. you know, your own republic. But I think as, you know, other people have said, the trouble is sometimes when a republic expands it it, it's very much trying to um pull other people entirely within its own norms you know it doesn't have the sense that well our uh, sort of older empires both in europe and european overseas empires were in a way much more plural they had sort of many languages many cultures many religions and they sort of allowed for that but There's a sense in which America, um, because it is basically a sort of inward-looking republic, can only expand as as America, or 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 uh, um, or you know, it's only trying to have economic influence, which is sort of shorn away, held apart from any kind of political or caring concern. And then even even that kind of economic expansion tends to bring um a cultural dominance in its in its wake. So there's a sense to which you know because America is sort of a reluctant imperial power, it hasn't always been a very good imperial power. It, 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 it's not, it's not, not kind of normal um, for it. And and I think, you know, one aspect of the problem of sort of trying to make everywhere a liberal democracy is, is that one fails to see, well, you know, there may be ways of being a decent society under the rule of law um, that are more hierarchical than we might be happy with, but aren't necessarily totally horrible so you, you tend to get this sort of duality of well either it's got to be a liberal democracy or we're just going to have sort of brutal realism you know and um i think all that is is tragic and you know that both both britain and america could have pursued a much more subtle approach to the near east you know that 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 more understood that people aren't naturally um, in nations, you know they' they're Sunni Muslims or they they're Shiite Muslims. and we we could have tried to work much more with with the grain of this culture. You know, after all, this is an area where people have lived fairly happily alongside each other in different religions for hundreds of years. And it does seem as if kind of the the, the nation state formation makes that more difficult. Not, you know, kind of creates
0: Um, a problem that it then tries to solve. Yes.
2: And and couldn't we have sort of more talked with the people in those areas um, offering aid that would help them towards more naturally indigenous solutions? You know, rather than this alternative, although we're in there fighting horrible wars, we're not going to win. And the other one is, well you know, we'll just with, with, withdraw totally, mm-hmm. um, which is actually turning out not to be realistic. We
0: keep on right now. We're being dragged back in again, you know? Yep. Well, this is my last question, Dr. Mo Thank you so much yeah. again. This has been wonderful. Um, Now, since this was supposed to be an October interview, um, I always like to end our October interview. You're going to have a full question oh yeah this is a spooky question okay and uh and so i'm bringing this into the new year the year is 2024 so there's kind of a whole narrative here john milbank wakes up in a cold sweat hearing a voice speaking to him it's some kind of Uh, it's some kind of specter and the specter says go to america john go to america the next day you chalk it up to a crazy dream you go to your office Uh, but you can't shake this voice go to america so you finally break you hop on a plane and fly fly. yeah you fly into jfk not knowing you know what you're even doing there you walk around the upper west side just wandering around starting to get late you go into a pub and run into some faculty at from union seminary they say hey why don't you just stay at union tonight we'll get you we'll get a room for you so that night you're tossing and turning you're tossing and turning, and suddenly, Niebuhr appears as a ghost, uh-huh. and he okay. says, You are cursed, John Milbank. Every time you leave America, you shall hear the words repeated, Go to America. And you say, But Reinhold, what What have I done? What, why am I cursed? And Niebuhr says, You said in a discussion a while back, it's on YouTube, <laughs> where you say, <laughs> we have nothing to learn from america for your one shot at redemption you did say i can't remember what speech, you, what uh discussion you said this but you said oh. we have nothing to learn from america for your one shot at redemption you have to meet with a necromancer and when you arrive you have to choose one dead theologian or philosopher from america to bring back to life to haunt the west who will it be oh that's easy ralph waldo emerson oh interesting why great great thinker great thinker anything in particular why you there's a lot to learn from america i can't remember saying that I (laughs) i just wanted to give you a hard time about it that's okay
2: yeah um well, I, I I think he sort of transcends that contrast between between idealism and realism. You know oh. that that he has this powerful sense that uh, nature is real, um, our mind is real, and there's a resonance between them, and manages to
0: express that in a very simple way. Wow. So we need we need uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson back with us.
2: Yeah, he's not perfect on topics of history and society, but um, we got something to learn. Uh, 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 undoubtedly, an American mutation of romanticism, who remains, yeah. I, I think, yeah, very important for us. Yeah. His sense of nature is very powerful.
0: John Milbank, thank you so much again for taking the time. It was a great pleasure, and honestly, it was it was a great honor. Oh, yeah, no, it's you. been fun. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks thank you. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor Podcast. I want to thank again our guest, Professor John Milbank, and I want to thank you, all you out there in the neighborhood, for tuning in. Like and subscribe, write us a good review, tell your friends. And follow us on Twitter, at love Thy Niebuhr, for news and updates and memes. Drop us a tip if you're enjoying it. Until next time, take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.